Good evening. If you would, open up a Bible to the Old Testament book of Jonah. I'll give you a moment to flip there. That's a hard one to find. Between Obadiah and Micah, Jonah's where we'll be here in a moment. It's wonderful to see everybody out this evening. It's my hope and prayer that this study can be as helpful and applicable in your life as I know that it has been in mine. In 2004, there was a study published that asked a question that sociologists and psychologists have been fascinated with in recent years. What would Jesus' personality type be considered? We love those nowadays. We love finding out about people's personality types. And so they looked at the common one that you use your four letters, and they had college students trying to determine what Jesus' personality type would have been. And so they look, was he an introvert or an extrovert or a feeler or a perceiver? And what they found is that it, they didn't really come out with that much on what they thought Jesus' personality type was. What the interesting takeaways from the study was, was how students perceived it. And they found two things. Number one, that's not as important for our study tonight, but still interesting, is that students would tend to assign Jesus whatever personality type that they thought was ideal in their culture. So you think about in America, maybe what our ideal personality is for someone like a politician, they would try and assign them that. But number two, that I find very important, is that when they didn't do that, which was assigning the ideal personality, they would project themselves upon Jesus they would assume that if how they acted in a situation was the correct way to act, that Jesus must act that exact same way. The thinking, when you think about it, is very easy to allow into our minds. Jesus must be just like me. God must be just like me. And he must think the exact same way that I do. I understand that we don't say that, but a lot of times our actions do. And we live in a society that values individual achievement, and to an extent, rightfully so. But when we combine these things, it's not hard to see that we can try and mold our God around ourselves, rather than allowing ourselves to be transformed into the image of the God that we serve. And we see this all throughout the Bible. But particularly tonight, I think we see it in the book of Jonah, who I've entitled the Me Prophet. If you would, let's just briefly kind of go through the story of Jonah here as a recap and looking through this lens of Jonah and me. Jonah, the book, starts about as straightforward as any book in the Bible does. Verse 1 of Jonah 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them away from the presence of the Lord. It's about as straightforward as it gets. Jonah the me prophet, had a serious problem with what God was calling him to do. It didn't fit in his mind. So we continue in verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. 
And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. We read that these men on the ship were horrified. They're working frantically to throw cargo overboard. And Jonah has gone to sleep. And when the captain comes and tells him to call out to his God, you know what we don't have a record of in the next few verses? We don't have any record of Jonah calling out to his God in the middle of the storm. And so ultimately, it comes to the point where Jonah tells the men to throw him overboard. And when he's thrown overboard, eventually we find out that he prays and the Lord saves him. He ends up in the belly of a fish. And that's how he's saved. And so he prays to God. And in chapter 3, we see it again. God gives him a second chance and says, Jonah, go to that city. And so Jonah does. And you know what happens? The people repent that he really did not want to go see. He did not want to preach to them. But it just so happens that was exactly what he did not want to happen. And so in chapter 4 of Jonah, in verse 1, we see... But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee. Once again, Jonah was not a fan of the things that God was working in his life. And so verse 3 of chapter 4, we read, Therefore now, O Lord... Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And Jonah continues on. He goes out of the city, even though God has decided to spare it. He goes out of the city because he is still holding out hope that God will destroy these people. And so God tries to teach him. He appoints a plant to come up, but then he appoints a worm and a scorching wind to kill the plant. And it comes to the point where once again... In verse 8, Jonah says, It is better for me to die than to live. Verse 9, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. That's a pretty straightforward perspective. Jonah was not a fan of what God was trying to do. Everything was about Jonah. It was about Jonah's nation. It was about who Jonah thought was worthy of God's love, mercy, and grace. He viewed his people and himself as far greater than those awful people that lived in Nineveh. And so when I first read this, I said, boom, I've got a sermon there. That's it. It was all about Jonah. What was he thinking? How in the world could he have done this? And I thought it was great. And then I read it again. And then I did a little more studying on the background. And I realized that I think sometimes we treat Jonah the same way we do with maybe the children of Israel or the Apostle Peter, where we just say, what were they thinking? How could they think that? I would never do that. I realized that I was probably being a bit harsh. Try and put yourself in Jonah's shoes for a moment. Did you know that no prophet had ever been called to leave Israel before? Jonah would have been the first. So imagine God coming to you and telling you, you're the first one, you're going to leave my chosen people, you're going to go someplace else. 
let alone this was not just an overnight trip. He couldn't just hop on a, a quick flight from Israel up to Nineveh. This would have been a journey. To compound that, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was pretty obvious at that time that the Assyrians were becoming a very clear threat to God's people. And if you do some even more digging, they are considered some of the cruelest people to ever walk the face of the earth. In our terms today, you would maybe think about turning on the news and seeing something that's happening far away in another nation and just feeling sick to your stomach. And when you think about that, that would have been the Assyrians. So much of what they did was beyond brutal. And so Jonah, who has gotten this call to go to the Assyrians, likely faces death by going and telling some of the cruelest people on earth that they need to repent and turn around or else they will be destroyed. But if he does not leave, he betrays his God. But if he leaves, not only does he face death from the Assyrians, he could have been viewed as a traitor to the people of Israel. And so once again, he faces a potential death from his own people. And so short on options, Jonah just runs. The second time I looked at this story, I'm not so sure how easy it would have been to answer this call. I don't know how eager I would have been to just hurry up and make haste and go to Nineveh like God would have said. I often hear people talk about how easy and nice it would be if God audibly spoke to us today. You ever hear people say that? How nice it would be if God just spoke to me and I wouldn't have to try and decipher everything out of his word. Well, I have bad news. Jonah was spoken to, and Jonah didn't like what he heard. And most of the time throughout the Bible when people were spoken to, it wasn't, wasn't exactly what they wanted to hear. The older I get the more I see how difficult it truly is to do what Isaiah did when he just said, here am I, send me. So this story of Jonah forces us to look at how we view others, how we respond to God's call to show love to others, no matter who they are. Jonah needed to learn what God tries to teach us. I found this quote a little while back from Bob Goff. It says, The measure of the good that God's doing in our lives isn't how we're feeling about it. That's the goal. That's what Jonah needed to hear. I've written this down. I've needed to hear this a lot. I don't think it applies in every single circumstance of our lives, but I think that we could do good by thinking about it this week. The measure of the good that God's doing in our lives isn't how we're feeling about it. From the difficult people that we interact with to the situations that we're put in, it's not about us. God was working amazing things through Jonah's life, and he never realized it because he didn't like it. He was too consumed in himself, his people, and his perspective. And just like that earlier study that we looked at where the college students tried to assign Jesus a personality, when we assume that God thinks like we do, or we assume who is and isn't worthy of his grace, we miss out on some amazing things that God's working to accomplish. We stay blind ourselves, and we impact others in the process. Could you imagine being someone in Nineveh after the, pack, after the fact that had repented, and you found out the story of Jonah? You say, you mean to tell me that God told you, Jonah, 
to come and preach to me because we're going to be destroyed. And you did what? You tried running the complete opposite direction? Didn't you care for, for this many people in this massive city? Our selfishness has an impact on others, not just ourselves. So we have the problem, which is the problem of me, my perspective, my people. And we have the goal. The goal is that it's not about us. And the goal is that we would see the beauty of God working in our lives no matter how we feel about it. But how do we get there? If we left this evening, there would be no how. I think ultimately we learn the how still in this story. And I think it's through comparing Jonah. There's a lot of comparisons to Jonah that can be made. I was fascinated by this. You can compare Jonah to the prodigal son. The complete story, actually. Jonah, in the first two chapters, represents the prodigal son that Jesus talked about that ran off. And in the last two chapters, represents the older brother and the prodigal son who refused to show compassion in the end. You can compare Jonah to the Apostle Paul, who in Acts 16, when he heard a call, the Macedonian call, made a straight course, immediately went to help, and ultimately is thrown in jail and showed compassion to the jailer. But the ultimate comparison is to Jesus, who even spoke of Jonah. If you would, keep a marker in Jonah. We'll come back there in a moment, but turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38, Jesus talks about Jonah, and he gives us an insight to some of these comparisons that can be made. In Matthew 12, starting in 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus gives us this window into this comparison. And when you start to unravel the rest of the comparisons, they really are fascinating. Jesus and Jonah both had a mission that required them to go outside of just God's chosen people, Israel. And just as Jonah had to leave Israel, the promised land, so Jesus left heaven for his mission. We see that both are asleep in the middle of great storms. This is a very unique story. We've been talking in the high school class when looking at prophecy through Psalms, and one of the main things is that you just can't make these kinds of things up, right? You can't make this comparison up, that we have a story in the Gospels of Jesus being fast asleep in the middle of a great storm where he has experienced fishermen on his boat who are afraid they're going to die. And we have Jonah who is fast asleep in a boat in the middle of a great storm where he has experienced sailors who are fully convinced that they are going to die. And in both instances, they are directly involved with the storm's calming, with Jonah being thrown overboard. And Jesus speaking. And in both storm situations, 
the response from the experienced men, whether it be the fishermen or the sailors, is the exact same language, the exact same terminology. It says they were filled with great fear both times. And as Jesus mentioned, just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish, so Jesus spent three days in the tomb. And so the comparisons between the two are fascinating. But I think it's the contrast with Jesus that show us what the story is really about. Hopefully you kept a marker back in Jonah. Flip back to Jonah real quick. We're going to look at Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. When Jonah has been swallowed by this fish, he prays to God. God saves him in this fish. And we come to this point of his prayer in Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah gives this prayer where he collects a number of different psalms and he puts them into this prayer. And while it is a beautiful prayer that ultimately leads to him being spat out of this fish onto dry land, notice with me in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Some versions may say their hope of grace. It almost sounds like he's talking about all the pagans he's dealt with, the people on the boat. almost sounds like he's talking about those people in Nineveh, doesn't it? And then verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Even in his prayer... It's almost as if we can see that Jonah's still got a little bit of me left in him. He's still talking about how, you know what, I am better than some of those terrible people out there. And I will sacrifice to you. I will not be like others who sacrifice to vain idols. Jesus gives a contrast to this in the New Testament. In Matthew 9, we have Pharisees who come at Jesus. Pharisees, a fairly similar attitude to Jonah, right? They were pretty good at determining who was worthy of God's calling. And so Jesus is with Matthew at his home. In verse 10, as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he quotes Hosea and says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In Jonah's prayer, he is still banking on his righteousness being enough to get him out of the situation. He knows that God will deliver him because he is righteous. Jesus gives a little bit of a different take. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He draws them to mercy. It's the mercy that we see in Jesus that shows us what God was trying to teach Jonah this whole time. 
He wanted him to see mercy. And it's the mercy of God that gives the story a completely different lens. If you're still in Jonah, go to chapter 4 in verse 2. When the people of Nineveh have repented, Jonah prays to God and he is furious. In verse 2 he says, He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah is furious because he said, God, I knew that you're too nice with these people. I knew that you love people too much. It's the mercy of God that he was directly trying to teach Jonah with, to get him out of his conceited state of me. And it's that exact same lens that changes the story and changes our lives. It's God's mercy and love that wanted to call the people of Nineveh to repent. And so Jonah runs, and God could have said, okay, that's it. I'm not going to use you. Who's next? He didn't do that. God was merciful. Gave him a second chance. And so Jonah then gets thrown into the water, cries out to God. God uses a fish. And so Jonah goes and prophesies, and the people turn from their ways, and you know what God does? He's merciful, and he spares them. And so Jonah pouts, and he angrily prays to God for being too nice, and God doesn't strike him down. Once again, he shows him more mercy, more patience. So God tries to use a plant to teach Jonah the story. Once again, Jonah says that he should just die. It is better for him to die than to live. And God even questions him on it in the end of chapter 4. You know what, Jonah? He says it again. It is better for me to die. Once again, God could have just said, okay, you're not my prophet anymore. But he doesn't. He still tries to teach him. Even the story ends at the very end of book of Jonah. In verse 11, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Mercy is what changes the story. And it's the comparisons and the contrasts, really, that show us mercy We're blessed that we get to look at this story on the other side of the cross because we get to look back and compare Jonah and Jesus and what they did differently. Jonah ran from God's call, directly ran from it. Jesus poured himself out. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Jonah being thrown into the sea was the substitute to save the sailors' physical lives. It calmed the sea. Jesus is the substitute for us and our spiritual storm on the cross to save us. Jonah left the city after the people repented, hoping that it would be destroyed. Jesus left the city on his way out to die for it on a cross. Jonah angrily said, It is better for me to die than to live after his enemies were spared. And Jesus died on a cross directly for his enemies and didn't retaliate 
didn't curse them. Even on that cross, Jesus showed mercy. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In his book, The Prodigal Prophet, Timothy Keller writes that it was the same mercy that Jonah couldn't comprehend that was his only hope. It's pretty true for you and I. It was the same mercy that Jonah couldn't comprehend that was his only hope. Jesus tries to teach us that same compassion in Matthew. This will be our last passage for the evening. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a story that almost sounds like he's got Jonah in mind. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21, we'll be reading here through verse 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Stop right there. That sounds pretty similar to the story of Jonah. We see a servant here who goes to his master, 10,000 talents, not payable. It was never going to happen. Had no hope. The master was his only hope. It sounds a lot like Jonah being in the belly of a fish. You have any hope in the belly of a fish outside of God? No. It's not going to happen. And so then Jesus continues, and we actually see the attitude that Jonah had throughout the rest of the story. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt." So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus wanted them to learn mercy. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Personally, I have struggled with grasping the concept of mercy. Mercy and grace, they've always been tricky to me. And after reading Jonah, of all books, it's become that much more clear. Jason's always saying that we need to make sure we're reading our Old Testaments. I found out why. Everyone in the world 
wants to tell us that the God of the Old Testament that we so rarely open our pages to learn about is cruel. He's punishing. He's full of wrath. I read the story of Jonah, I see the exact opposite now. I see a God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, full of mercy, abounding in steadfast love. Ultimately, this display of mercy reminds us of our own story, makes us examine our own faith and our hearts. We struggle with it because like Jonah, I have ran from God's call. He's called me to be a light in the world. He's called me to die to self. He's called me to show love and mercy to others. And I have deliberately ran from that call in my own life because I've been selfish. I have decided who is worthy of God's grace. And I haven't shown mercy as I should. Jason even talked about this this morning. He read that that verse in Ephesians where Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses. And I didn't notice it until he read it this morning. But in verse 4 we read, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, saved us. I've been like Jonah. And just like Jonah, praise be to God that he has been full of mercy. And he has been patient and merciful with me every step of the way. No matter my selfishness, my stubbornness, no matter what it took to teach me about his love, whether that be a plant or whether that be spending time in the belly of a fish. And I think I realize that that's the reason why we struggle with this story more when we sit and we examine it more deeply. When we look at Jonah, we see ourselves. We have to wrestle with ourselves, and hopefully we end up finding a God who is full of mercy to get us out of the state of me and into the state of mercy. Not only that, but you know, we like clear good guys and bad guys in our stories. It's one of the reasons why I think people like Hallmark movies so much. They've grown on me a little bit, and it's because it's very easy to find who is the good person and who is the bad person in that story. When we read Jonah... Who is the good person? Because it was the cruel Assyrians that repented. And it was the pagans on the boat that repented. And the prophet of God, who was probably the most righteous of them all, he was the one that said it was better for him to die than live and hoped that God would punish those people. So he was probably very righteous, but he did have a strong me problem. He had an even stronger mercy problem. He was flawed, kind of like us. And I think we struggle with this story because of how it ends. We don't have a nice bow wrapped around the story of Jonah. We're left with a real cliffhanger when it comes to Jonah. Some speculate that the rest of Jonah's story may not be so great because of how it ends. They say, it doesn't end on a great note. Jonah keeps asking to die rather than to live, so we may not even want to know. Others maybe take a little bit more of a positive approach, and they say, actually, I think that the rest of Jonah's story could be great, and that we have this story because Jonah wisened up. He saw God's love, and he went around and told everyone of what God had done in his life. 
Like Jonah, our story's not over. And like Jonah, we're left staring at God's mercy in our lives with the decision to make. To finish tonight, I'd just like to read the lyrics of a song that's been on my heart ever since I heard it about a year ago. And it's titled, His Mercy is More. The song goes like this. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And the chorus just simply says, Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness and new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So tonight, looking at this story, I simply ask, how will you respond to God's mercy? It's not hard to see that he's been merciful with me. It's not hard to see he's been merciful with you. He's shown us love and grace that we don't deserve. How wonderful of a fact that is. But we have the option of how to respond. Will you turn from it? Will you be stubborn? Harden your heart? Or will you allow yourself to be transformed by the mercy and grace of God that he showed through us, through Jesus on a cross? And ultimately, will you allow it into your heart to be transformed to the point where you will show it to others so that they can learn of his mercy and grace as well? Whatever your need be tonight, don't hesitate. Come forward while we stand and sing.